Good evening and welcome. Thank you for coming out on such a wet, cold, miserable night. It's such a pleasure to have you join us here this evening for a very special guest. My name is Carol Collard, I'm the City Librarian, and it's my pleasure to introduce this event on behalf of the Library and our Look Who's Talking program. Before we begin, I always acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wanarua people, and pay my respects to them, um, pay my respects to their storytellers and their musicians. Uh, so, Mark Tinson, our guest, with a music career spanning five decades, our guest has a lot of stories to tell. He grew up in Maitland, but he's known as the godfather of Newcastle music. Way back in the 1960s, he was in a band called Bluegrass, which he informs me our general manager was in also, and a member of our audience. Um, welcome. Going on to form the glam rock band Rabbit in the early 70s, if we can remember that, and later Heroes. In fact, it was Heroes that famously delivered the closing set at the Star Hotel on the night of the 1979 riot, which made headlines right around the world. He's also played with Swanee and the Ted Mulry Gang, familiar names in the 80s. As well as a talented guitarist, Mark has worked as record producer and sound engineer with some of the biggest names in Australian music and has been mentor to many Novocastrian musicians including DB8, who remembers them, The Screaming Jets, and Silverchair. His collaborations with Australian and international musicians have produced a unique catalogue of instrumental guitar albums issued as Steelville Cats and Surf Cats. Mark's interest in music is not limited to the different types of pop and rock music depicted by the 70s and 80s bands uh, with which he played, He's also professionally played and become involved in the recording and producing of a wide range of styles, from rockabilly and country to Cajun and jazz. His association with Newcastle Music continues today with regular radio programs on ABC and through occasional lectures at the Newcastle Conservatorium of Music. So anyone that listened to music um, in the 70s and the 80s has probably heard Mark Tinson play. Too Much Rock and Roll, his book, gives an insight into his part in shaping the Newcastle musical landscape, and it's described as full of wry observations from within an often absurd industry. So it's a pleasure to welcome Mark Tinson. Thank you. That makes me sound really important. <laughs> I'll just address that title of uh, Godfather of Newcastle Rock. I think it's simply staying around the longest <laughs> and shouting the loudest. Now, I haven't actually prepared anything. I'm just going to start with a stream of consciousness. If you feel like you want to ask a question, feel free to do that. And um, uh, as, as she said, it's 50 years of, of the music industry, or if, if that's not an oxymoron, and uh, I've survived that, and I've, I only had to have 
a real job for about 10 years, which has been fantastic. You know, my mum and dad were so proud when I got a job as a TAFE teacher at uh, Newcastle. <laughs> so, and uh, one of the things I, I often did in, at, uh, in my classes in TAFE, I, I asked my uh, students, name the seven dwarves. Doc? You're doing pretty well. Now, name seven Australian Idol winners. Okay, he only came second. Takes a while, doesn't it? I'll just make that point because um, uh, I might comment later on about where the music industry's gone. And, uh, but what I'll do uh, with, with regards to my career, I'll start maybe 15 years ago. Uh, the drummer in a band that I worked with, The Heroes and Rabbit, you know, despite working with him for 10 or 15 years, he's still my good friend. And uh, he rang me up one day and said, do you want to form a cowboy band? <laughs> I went, yeah, okay. How, how, hard, how hard can that be? So we put together, he said, I've got a job, or I've got a gig every Monday night at the Cambridge Hotel. So we did it, we called the band Tex Pistols, and we played sort of comedic country music, and, uh, you know, we played country versions of Rose Tattoo songs or Led Zeppelin songs or whatever. But um, through the process of putting together the repertoire for the Tex Pistols, I actually um, grew to, to be very fond of country music. And uh, just people like little Jimmy Dickens, who I'd never heard of before, uh, and the Sons of the Pioneers, just wonderful old country songs. So I thought, what I should do is take myself off to America and learn about country music. So in 1991, I took a trip, drove right across America, it took six weeks. Every station that you picked up on the way, on the radio, if if it uh, was out, out in the, the woods somewhere, if it wasn't near a big city, it was a country music station. So I collect a lot of country music when I was over there. But the, the reason I start off with the Tex Pistols is that um, one of the places that we ended up was New Orleans in Louisiana. And I fell in love with Louisiana and New Orleans and the music of New Orleans, so particularly Cajun music, which is the music of the... Uh, the, the uh, French that were driven out of Nova Scotia and settled in Louisiana. So I kept being drawn back and back and back to Louisiana. And one of, on one of the trips that I made to Louisiana, I came across a band called Little Band of Gold. And what they were was a band of Cajun musicians from three generations of players. So we had a guy called Warren Storm, who'd, who'd been a big... Uh, um, idol or regional idol uh, in Louisiana in the 50s. So he's oh, in his 80s now. He's still got a slick back hair like a rockabilly guy. Beautiful voice, wonderful drummer. And they had uh, a keyboard player, David Egan. Wonderful player, wonderful writer. Written songs for Joe Cocker, uh, for uh, uh, the, the lady that sang At Last. Sorry? Yeah, Eddie James. So, yeah, wonderful writer, great guitar player called C.C. Adcock, wonderful, uh, another four or five members of the band. But what I realised that um, our little band of gold was doing, they were keeping alive the traditions of Louisiana music. So they'd formed this super group, 
and they made records and it was about playing the old songs and adding to that repertoire. So I was intrigued with that and I got to be very good friends with David Egan, the keyboard player. He came out and recorded with me uh, on a number of occasions. But uh, that idea of uh, keeping the music alive and documenting the, the people and the history of, of their music sort of, it, it just bubbled in the back of my mind for a long time. And uh, with the text pistols, uh, one of the things that happened when I was driving across America, I was walking down the street in New Orleans and this big American fellow popped out of a strip club with a, a blonde on each arm and he had on a safari suit and he was a portly gentleman as well and if that's not an American stereotype, I don't know what he is. And uh, I thought to myself, look at that, stereo blondes. Now there's a song just waiting to be written. So it's on this album. <laughs> so... Um, that whole, the whole uh, idea of, of uh, country music was exciting to me. So I uh, wrote a whole album of uh, text pistol songs. And then I wrote a, another whole album of text pistol songs. But I was having trouble writing the lyrics for them. It's just a bit of a writer's block or whatever. So I uh, had one tune and I got a, a mate of mine to come in and play guitar on it. And I thought, let's just make this an instrumental song. And I thought... That's fantastic. I'll do an album of instrumental songs. I don't need to do another Text Pistols album. And I've got all my props here. <laughs> I came up with the Steelville Cats album. Now, what this album did was, uh, I guess, coverless all that that happened to me in, in Louisiana uh, with the idea of documenting our history and the people involved in the music. And uh, what this album consisted of was a pile of my favourite local guitar players who quite often uh, aren't recorded anywhere, aren't documented in any other fashion, uh, except for a couple. There's a Grant Wormsley from the Screaming Jets does a track on here. Um, but otherwise, all local guys virtually uh, unlouded, unheralded, and this is a document of those guitar players. And I thought, this is a really good thing to do. Nobody else is doing this. So... I wrote another one, Sorry, the Steelville Cats 2. Now, Steelville obviously refers to Newcastle, the Steel City. So the Cats are the guitar players in, in Steelville. So another album of instrumental music um, by local guitar players. And this is, it was really satisfying to be able to put that out there. But what I've found out is, and this may become really clear to you, most radio stations in Newcastle or in Australia or in the world have a blanket policy, oh, we don't play instrumental music. So it doesn't get much airplay. But I still think it's an important document of the people that uh, I've grown up listening to and working with. Welcome. Sorry. That's all right, welcome. <laughs> I think you've almost filled the last seat. Yes, I wrote all the songs. I play all the incidental parts. Um, I recorded it, produced it, and the, the guitarists that I invite to play with me play the lead lines, and I always leave a space for them to improvise as well, so to show off their, their skill and daring uh, on the guitar. And uh, in a lot of cases, um, I try to put them out of their comfort zone as well, so they might be playing something they've never ever tried before. And just the first... 
the albums that I did as instrumentals. Uh, this is the Surf Cats. It's a surf guitar album. So I've gone from nobody plays instrumental music on the radio. I know I'll refine it even further to surf music. Yeah? But what I've found with this one, this little niche market is quite popular all over the world. So I'm selling stuff in England and, and America as well now. I've just got a, a, a review in the Pipeline magazine in, in uh, England, which was really, wow. But what I did on this one, I... Um, and, and part of the reason I'm telling you this is, is that um, I've done a lot of different things in the music industry, not all of them very successful, and I can say if I had to do a cost-benefit uh, analysis on, on the creative work that I do, I'd never do anything. <laughs> so this one, I actually asked some overseas players to play on it, and I don't know if you remember, but Chris Spedding from uh, Roxy Music, Brian Ferry's band, he played on a track. Uh, a New York guitarist called Osnoy played on a track. Another guitar player from England from back in the 60s, a band called the Packer Beats, who had a big hit in Britain, played on the, on the uh, album for me. And, and what I found, being a guitar player, it's part of a big brotherhood. It's a global brotherhood. So you ask a guy to play on your record and they usually say, yeah, sure, why not? And uh, so I was really proud of this one. And the reason... Um, I got to do this album was uh, when I finished working at TAFE uh, I had a lot of time on my hands I didn't have to go to work every day so I thought I'll finish this album and make it the best album I've ever done and I think I've done that and uh, it'll be up to you to judge if you, if you happen to take a copy back with you um, so that idea that um, you can just start to weave into a whole brotherhood and a whole global uh, uh, community of musicians it's just so exciting and of course we're in a time now where uh, music uh, record companies don't invest in this sort of thing so it's, it's very much self-funded but what you find is when you self-fund your own project you have more control and it's it's one of those things where if you really want to get out and play this stuff people will come they'll hear you play it and they'll buy it and it's like I'm so excited to be living in this time, you know. Most people say, oh, this music sounds rubbish now. No, it's really good. So, along the lines of documenting the guitar players in Newcastle, also wrote a book documenting my, my history, um, the failures and, and some of the successes. It's probably more failures. But um, there's a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of information about the Newcastle music scene and little forays into the, the national music scene, uh, the people that I've worked with. And I thought, well, I'll go back now right to the beginning. So the, the writing of this book's been in the back of my mind probably for as long as the records that I've been making with the Steelbook Cats. I thought, one day when I've got time, I'll, I'll actually write a book, maybe. And again, after I'd finished the surf album, I still had time on my hands, having not, not having to go to work every day and in a state of semi-retirement. So I started writing a book and I thought, when do I want to release it? I thought, on my 64th birthday. So it's a rock and roll milestone, according to Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah. so, so I thought, okay, I'll start with that. I'll release the book on, this, on my 64th birthday. I'll book a venue now. So I booked Lazotte to have my 64th birthday party and release my book and my surf album. So um, I did that six months ahead 
and I started writing because I needed a good at least two months to get the book manufactured and back in time for the event. It arrived two days before. <laughs> so it was fine, and it, it wouldn't have arrived, arrived at all had we not gone down to Sydney to pick it up from from the distributor. Or we picked up, I think, three hundred, and uh, well, the, the remaining seven hundred arrived, you know, in the middle of the following week. So it was all about planning. So once I'd started writing, I was spending probably five or six hours a day, and I thought, I'm not getting very far with this. I don't know if I'm going to make this deadline. So then I started writing probably 12 hours a day, nearly every day, except when I had a little bit of work to do, um, and continued on for just about four months and uh, finally finished it. And then there was all the other things, like who knew that you had to have a book designer? Yeah. Who knew that you had to have a proofreader? You know, who knew that you had to get all the photos scanned at a high resolution? Not me. So this was a real learning curve for me. Uh, but I managed to pull it off, and the, the night of the of the uh, the book launch, um, I held a concert, and just about all of the people that are mentioned in the book came along and played with me, which is just fabulous, you know. And it, uh, it's really rewarding to know that the people that you've worked with for so long are prepared to come along on a Friday night, which is the big night for musicians, and play for me rather than go out and, and play to. I don't know, 50 people in a pub who, who were ignoring you. So it was a great concert. So I grew up in Maitland, and uh, when I was about 14, I started dabbling in, in uh, putting a band together. My brother had left a ukulele at my house. He, he was studying at uh, Armidale University. and came home in his holidays, left the ukulele there, and because oh, I went to pick it up, and he said, turn it around the right way, or I'm not going to teach you. So I'm left-handed, but I play right-handed now. And uh, so he, he taught me to play a few chords. So I learned to play the ukulele. He couldn't wrestle it off me. The next time he came back home, he brought a guitar, an acoustic guitar. So he left that with me as well. I think the first song that I learned was The House of the Rising Sun. And uh, so, uh, and really, I think uh, one of the, the things that I treasure about my childhood was that uh, we didn't have television. Because now that we do have television, I'm hopelessly addicted to it. And uh, the fact that we didn't have TV until, I think, the final year of high school, and only then did we have it in the holidays, we'd rent a TV in the holidays. So all of the hours that I might have spent in front of a TV, I spent playing the guitar. So I, think, I thank my parents for that every day. I also thank them for the piano lessons that they made me take with Mrs Robinson up, in, uh, up into there with there. Do you know Mrs Robinson? So, in Maitland at that time, uh, my musical education was pretty much from the radio and, and my mates at school who might introduce me to some uh, music. Um, so, uh, as I recall, there's I think three radio stations that were fiercely competitive. 
So you would have to listen to the cool radio, radio station and that was largely about what music was being played by which DJs. And the DJs at the time still had a little bit of autonomy about what they played. So I would listen to the station that had the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Trogs and the Kinks and the Beatles and, and uh, the, uh, the Easy Beats, Ray Brown and the Whispers, all of those bands, Zoot. Um, and uh, I remember DJs like Art Ryan, uh, I've got to say, is a, is a really good friend of mine now too. So it's been terrific to, to make friends with a guy who was one of my big influences back in the day. And... Uh, so there wasn't many places to play in, in uh, Maitland. We played at the Mechanics Institute, uh, played at the Town Hall. But prior to that, uh, I think my dad, who was, can't hold a tune, and uh, I think he was a bit of a pragmatist and thought, well, he seems to be interested in music, so we'd better get somewhere for him to play. So with the Progress Association in Tanambit, he opened the Tanambit Disco in the Progress Hall. Every second Friday night, there was us, uh, my band Bluegrass, and another band called uh, The Midnight Express, and one of the guys is here tonight, Dennis. <laughs> Not naming any names. Um, so we would play every every fortnight or every second fortnight, and, and we'd actually jam with each other as well. So uh, that we'd regularly draw 50 or 60 kids, you know, whether they're intent on listening to us or just sort of bunking off into the into the trees with their girlfriends, I don't know. But uh, that was a fantastic opportunity to learn how to play in front of an audience. Um, and then as, as we got better at it, we started to get better jobs. So we, as I said, we played the turn at the uh, uh, Mechanics Institute, the town hall. We'd move further afield out to Cessna and play at the town hall out there uh, for, uh, what's his name, Saroff. Yeah, he used to run dances there. And, uh, we, we actually built up a following, and by the time I got to, I think, fifth form in high school, um, I had a really good band with, uh, with uh, Greg Lawler and, and Willie Walker and Bob Hanley, and uh, they came along and played at my book launch as well, which was just fantastic. We hadn't played together for, I think it was 43 years or something. It's just like putting on an old glove. It's fantastic work with them. It was fantastic that they were all still alive, which is consideration when you get up this end, past 64. Uh, so I look forward to doing some more work with those guys too. So we had a pretty good band and uh, we started moving further afield and then we ventured into Newcastle. And uh, we used to play at the Town Hall Dance in Newcastle, we played at the Palais, all sorts of places. Now, I asked you earlier about the, the Seven Dwarves and the Australian Idol thing. And uh, that idea of, of uh, music competitions is, is, it drives me nuts. But what I've realised about Australian Idol and, and that sort of program is it's not a music program, it's just a bad TV show. And it, it's, it's not about the contestants, it's about the judges. So having figured that out, you know, uh, after I got over the rage, you know, I'm OK with it, I just don't watch it anymore. <laughs> so, but um, we had our own version of Australian Idol or, or whatever, it was called the Hoadley's Battle of the Bands. And uh, the difference was, was there wasn't any coaches, there wasn't any celebrity uh, uh, judges, it was about bands coming together, competing against each other, and you know, they, all of those bands had following. So you had some of the biggest bands in Australia, uh, you know, the Twilights with Glenn Shock, 
the Zoot with uh, you know, uh, Bee Birdles who went on to Little River Band. And uh, bands of that ilk were competing. Uh, Doug Parkinson in Focus, uh, all in the Battle of the Bands. But there were local uh, uh, competitions as well. So if you won the local one, you got to compete against these guys in Sydney or Melbourne. So, and the prize for that was you got a trip to England, you know, and you could fail over there because you know, it seemed to be very little support after that. But what a great prize. And, and uh, it was something that was supported by the community. I remember uh, Bluegrass, uh, our, our Maitland band, played in Newcastle at the Battle of the Bands. And uh, we were okay on that, on that afternoon, but we weren't as good as what we, we were if we were a bit more relaxed. We're absolutely trounced by a band called Armageddon. And uh, our fan base was so strong that the judges actually gave us a fifth place. It's like, who gives fifth place? First, second, third, maybe. Just so that our fans wouldn't rip the theatre apart. <laughs> but um, so, you know, even back then we had, had band competitions. Uh, the point I make about um, uh, those, the difference between that and the, 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 the Australian Idol and the voice and things like that is that uh, even with three months of solid TV uh, exposure, these acts can't, can't pull skin off custard, you know, when they actually go out and work in the real world because they've got the skills to sing for a minute and a half on telly and they can't really back it up when they go out. And I guess, you know, it's, it's like anything, you know, if, when you have to go out and deliver, you know, that's when, when people will uh, recognise whether you've got talent or not. So um, I've been delivering for 50 years and, as I said, I only had to get a real job for 10, so I think I must have done all right with that. But um, when, when, uh, when I finished with Bluegrass, I put together a band called Rabbit and uh, we were very glam rock. We had uh, high heels up to here, stacked heels that high, ballet tights, long hair, bit of nail polish, jewellery. Yeah. So the kids today, they're not game to do that. Yeah. And uh, uh, So we were a glam rock band and uh, we started working around Newcastle and we, there was a fellow from Largs Post Office called Roy Duffy. Anybody know Roy? No? And uh, he was a bit of a rogue and uh, funny, funny as all get out, still a good friend of mine. But he decided to, to go to take us on as an agent rather than a manager. His idea was uh, he was running a dance at the, uh, the uh, Police Boys Club in, in Mayfield and he noticed that you know, every weekend they were putting you know, five, six hundred kids in, this, in these um, uh, dances. And the bands were getting tuppence. And the, some of the bands would be ringing him up saying, oh, we'll play for free. And he went, that's not right. You should be getting decent pay for it. So he put together uh, four of the best, what he considered to be the best bands in Newcastle. And his judgment of that was purely uh, of mercenary, really. How many people are these bands drawing? You know, that's a good band. He, he didn't care about music. Um, so he put us along with another uh, three bands in, a, in an agency called Quadra. And almost overnight, bands money doubled. And uh, he kept that going for a while and we had a good business and the musicians union used to try and tear shreds off him because they were doing a job that the 
musicians' union should have been doing. You know, the boy was, was doing much more to increase musicians' wages than the union was. And uh, after a while, he decided, I might try and get these bands into Sydney. And he su successfully put uh, three or four of the bands that he had into Checkers Nightclub. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Rabbit, Shirley Bassey. You know, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> so Shirley Bassey used to play there regularly. People acts like the Hollies would play there. But uh, by the time we got there, it was, it was pretty. It was a pretty rough old old dive, but still well patronised. And we we started playing other venues over Coogee, out on the North Shore as well. And um, and then he decided to go. I wonder if I can get a record deal for these guys. And uh, he took. Uh, the uh, head of CBS Records out for lunch got him really drunk and said, he said, John, his name was John Egerton, he said, John, I have no idea what the kids see in this band, but they keep drawing lots of people, they sound awful, they're rude, you know, but the kids love them. And this was such a fresh approach to, to CBS Records. <laughs> Why don't we sign him up? So we got signed to CBS Records and uh, we made a pretty ordinary record. And then CBS had a big reshuffle and they brought in a, a producer called uh, Peter Dawkins. Now Peter's uh, record with hit records is, was enormous. Uh, he had hits with Dragon, Air Supply, um, Spectrum, Aerial, whole pile of bands from that era. And uh, you know, he had success overseas. Uh, he'd once jammed with Jimi Hendrix, so he told us. But he was the first real record producer that I encountered. And uh, he inherited Rabbit into his roster of CBS uh, artists. He didn't pick us. He picked Dragon, he picked Air Supply. He inherited us. And I, I think he was kind of, what am I going to do with these guys? <laughs> and uh, he gave us a song. He said, I think this is a hit. And uh, he made us... Uh, uh, go and practice it. And just around that time, I went, well, if we've got to make demos for our record company, I might start to learn how to do that. So I bought a four-track recorder, just an open reel tape recorder. It was quite expensive in the days, about $2,000, I think, which back in 75 was a lot of money. And uh, so I started recording the demos for, for Rabbit to submit to our record company. So he gave us his song, it was called Wildfire. And it was just awful. And uh, we did a really half-hearted demo of it, gave it back to him, hoping he'd forget it. He went, nah, you can do better than that. And he sent us back four times to rework this song. And eventually, I think we actually won his heart and, and he recognised that we could play and that if he pushed us, we would do the work. So he kept us on CBS and uh, he recorded that single uh, wildfire, and it was it was it got uh, moderate airplay all over Australia. We got to to play on Countdown with it, which was was pretty exciting stuff for us. Um, but the most important thing for me was, apart from working with Peter as a producer, Peter had a vision, and that's something I learned from him. You have to know what it's going to sound like before you start, and then you just work towards that. So his vision, he had very clearly in his mind, and he worked us till he got what he wanted. But the other thing that was terrific about that experience was I got to work with an engineer, an audio engineer called Richard Lush. Now Richard had worked at Abbey Road with the Beatles. 
So he came with he had a great CV, a lot of uh, knowledge, a lot of skill, good ears, and I, I was it was like going to school for me to work with these guys. And you know I just drove them crazy. I think asking questions. But uh, after that experience, um, we submitted more demos, and I submitted a song called Too Much Rock and Roll, and Peter went, okay, that's it. That's the title of your next album. We're going to work all the songs around the idea of Too Much Rock and Roll, the song. So he, he looked at our image, and he went, boots. So he included the boots in the recording. So we stamped around the studio doing that in, in time to the, the chorus. Uh, so he, what his vision was to was to incorporate our our visual uh, dynamic with the with the sound of the recording, and uh, you know it's, I think it still stands up today as a pretty good record, you know. And just for your interest, yeah. this one here has a special bonus CD in the back, and the actual demo that I recorded for for Peter Dawkins appears as the last track on that CD. So just for interest's sake. And I, I listen to it and I go, that's all right. <laughs> I've only been doing it for a year. I think I did all right. You know, it sounds a bit awful, but it, it's kind of a bit of an energy about it. So um, after we made that record, again, we did, we did Countdown, and we went on tour with the Ted Mowry Gang. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ted Mowry Gang, but uh, Les Hall, the guitar player from TNG, lives over opposite the main hospital there. Always has. Uh, Herb Kovac, the drummer, was from Raymond Terrace. Those guys were playing in a band called the Velvet Underground in Maitland when I was a young guy. So one of the uh, important things that came out of the 70s era was the idea of mentoring young bands. So a successful band would mentor a band that was on the next level coming up. So we went on the road with Ted Mulry Gang. But back before that, uh, they played with the Velvet Underground. They mentored Rabbit. You know, they'd turn up at our gigs. They'd give us advice. Uh, Les used to teach me bits of guitar. You know, and, uh, it, such an underrated guitar player. Lives over near the hospital. <laughs> and Ted Mulry gang are back out on the road again, which is a bit difficult without a singer. But uh, Ted's brother is, is filling in the gaps there. So that, that idea of mentorships, the uh, Ted Mulry gang took us on, took Rabbit on a whole tour of Australia as their support act and they fed us and they put us in the bus and they accommodated us and gave us money and we were getting $80 a week each. Pretty good stuff. And we didn't have to pay rent. We gave away the house that we were renting in Sydney and we were, we thought we were in heaven. So this is fantastic. You know? And Ted, uh, TMG were able to do a tour of that magnitude because they'd previously done the same thing with Sherbert. So Sherbert had mentored um, TMG, TMG mentored um, Rabbit. Um, unfortunately, through that tour, uh, it just got a little bit wearing, uh, and I decided to give that away. And I came back to Newcastle and just uh, sort of floated around for a while, set up a recording studio, uh, started uh, learning more about producing and uh, recording local bands, uh, which I've continued to do until this day and uh, just played uh, with a, a couple of bands. I'll just make a point. One of the bands I played with was a band called The Bandits and uh, featured a guitar player called Bob Fletcher who uh, we sadly lost about two weeks ago. And uh, 
the point I make with that is that uh, the idea of documenting the history of Newcastle music is becoming even more important to me now that, that I've lost one of my dear friends. And uh, one of our audience here knows Bob too. Um, and she was recorded in a band called Nonstop Dancers, Carol. Mm -hmm. And Bob actually uh, put that recording and publishing deal together for them. So um, everywhere you look, you know, the community of musicians and the brotherhood and sisterhood uh, exists. So um, um, with, with, uh, with that, I just mucked around for a while and then I put the heroes together. And my idea for the heroes was I don't really want to go out and be on the road and be a pop star. I just want to play in a good band, make a decent living. So I, I grabbed two of the guys from Armageddon who trashed us at the Battle of the Bands and two of the guys from Rabbit, me and the drummer. So we put that together we just cleaned up. We were working seven gigs a week, every single week. We did that for two years solid, worked seven gigs a week. Two on Saturday, we took Mondays off. But if a Monday gig came up, we'd take that too. And uh, in that whole two years of doing that amount of work, we only missed one gig. So that idea of if you don't play, you don't get paid was very much in our minds. So, we, you know, we learned how to do it. And, you, and back then, you know, bands are doing, what, three hours a night now? We used to do four hours every, every night that we played. We'd do four 40-minute sets. And uh, in between those sets, we'd go and talk to the audience or whatever. We didn't have to battle. DJ going doof, 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 all night. So I guess you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, out at the King Street Hotel every weekend. Yeah. So, um, so the, that we were the most popular band I think Newcastle had ever seen, and uh, we we play those seven gigs a week. You'd quite often see the same people come to it three or four gigs every week, and uh, and it was a, as as much a social seen as, as an appreciation of the band. But, uh, it's a bit like the Beatles in Hamburg. They had to play eight-hour days, work day after day, weeks and weeks on end. When they finally went back to Liverpool, they were devastatingly good. You know, it's no wonder they took the world by storm. They were playing, really, they were, apart from being, their talent, they were playing so often that they became a really good band, which is something bands don't get to do anymore in, in uh, Newcastle or Maitland or whatever. Um, so uh, the heroes kept playing and one of our uh, favourite venues and one of the, the venues that liked us the most was the Star Hotel. And uh, uh, when the Star Hotel had to close down, the brewery decided that it needed too much maintenance um, to, to bother fixing. The Star Hotel was curious in that there was three sections to it. There was a front bar which fronted onto Hunter Street uh, and you usually found that because a whole lot of uh, sailors used to frequent that bar. They'd get off the ships, come and have a few drinks and, and whatever, meet the locals. Uh, there was a, a middle bar uh, which had, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, gay, uh, it was a gay scene, you know, and, and guys dressing up and singing as women and sailors the gay bar in the middle, at the back was the rock and roll bar. And all those people coexisted quite peacefully. Um, there was lawyers, there was tradesmen, there was all sorts of professional people, there were other musicians, uh, there were students, they were unemployed, all enjoying the same atmosphere there. So when the, the brewery decided to close it, there was a huge, I guess, emotional uh, night 
where everybody came together to see the last performance at the Star Hotel. And we didn't think too much of it. We said, oh, you know, I think it was our normal night anyway. Uh, they had DV8 played before us. So by the time we got on, uh, the crowd, the crowd was, they were well-oiled, let's say. And uh, it, it was a joyous occasion until the end. And, you know, I, I won't uh, be too heavy on the police about this, but they did come in rather foolishly right at 10 o'clock and say, you must stop the music now. Had, had they been fans, they would have realised we were only 30 seconds from the end of that song anyway. But by closing it, the, the band down, I think they created animosity with that audience and trying to clear 4,000 people out of the way with 40 policemen is virtually impossible. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a bit of to and froing and it escalated into a couple of, uh, or one police car being burned and turned upside down, um, which is appalling behaviour, you know, and it was, it was really badly managed and, and the police's excuse for closing it down early was that those 4,000 people in King Street, they were interrupting traffic. I'll just get them to go around the corner. <laughs> but they didn't, so it was a... Uh, that that uh, incident was broadcast all over the world. We had people ringing us from England, going, are you guys all right? Yeah, you bet we are. <laughs> we had a great night. But what came of that was we, we became quite famous all of a sudden, and we started to get interest from record companies uh, in Australia. And... Uh, one of the guys that offered us a record deal was a guy called Robbie Porter. He used to be called Robbie G back in the day. Look at a few, few heads nodding there. <laughs> Grey head heads on like that. And uh, Robbie went on to manage Rick Springfield in the States and a uh, very well respected musician and record producer. So he offered us a deal. And of course, Vander and Young from the Easy Beats, who were working with Albert, offered us a deal. And they, they obviously. The first choice for us because they had ACDC. It's like ACDC was the band every musician in Australia wanted to play in. It's like it's such a great band. And we went, okay, we're going with those guys. So we did an album with, with Alberts, and uh, Vander and Young produced the very first single, it was called Babies Had a Taste. And again, I had front row seat with two of the greatest producers, not only in Australia, but in the world and able to watch how they worked. And you go, you, you can't buy that education. We were actually being funded to get that education. They were recording us. And uh, so we recorded that track, and it was just an eye-opener to see how those two guys could see things that we couldn't see, and they could bring stuff out of us that we didn't know we had inside us. So we recorded that single, then they handed us on to another guy called Kim Thraves to produce the rest of the album. Kim had worked with the Sex Pistols in, uh, in England and had uh, toured with them as their front of house guy as well as, as recording their demos. So, you know, he had a lot of great yarns to tell, uh, but it was, he's still a dear friend today. Um, so we did, I think, a pretty good record. And I must, must point out, the, uh, we actually re-released the Hero CD just a couple of years ago we recorded a new Heroes album and re-released the, the old Heroes album as well. Uh, so uh, we were allowed, to, they gave us permission to use the master tapes. Thank you very much. Hold it up high. There it is. <laughs> Double album. 
can take it home with you if you want. Yeah, so um, again, through that period, and I'm still, we're still only up to the beginning of the 80s. So from you know playing in a, in a little band at high school in the late 60s right through, through the 70s to the beginning of the 80s, I was getting an enormous education, uh, not only in songwriting, playing live, uh, performing, how to work an audience, but also how to produce records. And uh, when the heroes uh, finished up, uh, the thing that I learned from playing with Rabbit, being popular in Newcastle, moving out of Newcastle, playing with heroes, moving out of Newcastle, you never make less money than when you start to go on the road. So we just went, yeah, this is silly. We, start, we built up a debt of about $15,000 and then we had to get rid of our truck and all that sort of stuff. So back at the beginning of the 80s, that's a big debt. So we, we just did a tour of Queensland, wiped the debt, and then went, okay, that's it, we'll do something else now. So um, uh, I started working full-time in a studio in Newcastle run by a guy called Peter Anderson, who ran Rock City Promotions. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that. The, the, they still exist. They uh, do most of the uh, music uh, uh, schedule at, at West's, the West Leagues Club. Um, so uh, came back, started the studio, started working... Uh, for him, started mixing sound live, which was something I hadn't done a lot of before. So I was the uh, the in-house sound engineer at the Newcastle Workers Club. So I made a lot of great friends during that period, but it really wasn't you know, what I wanted to do. I then started working for Ronnie DeWith, who, who ran Fanny's and who ran uh, the castle, uh, doing sound for, for those venues. <sighs> so that was... it. it it paid me, but what I, I decided to do was, well, I might just go to university while I'm doing this. So I went and studied at university and actually got a degree as a, uh, a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Studies. And my parents were so proud. Because <laughs> I, did, I didn't mention when I finished high school, I won a scholarship to the conservatorium uh, to become a music teacher. And... Uh, I mentioned mentors. One of my early mentors uh, still lives in Maitland, a guy called Tony Heads, and has mentored just about every single musician that's, that's grown up in Maitland. He also played with Les Hall in the Velvet Underground. But Tony managed to get himself kicked out of the conservatorium after 12 months. I lasted three. <laughs> so I don't know if he won or if I won. <laughs> but at that time... The music was going pretty well with the band, so it wasn't wasn't hard to leave the conservatorium. But so back to university, um, what I came up with at uh, university was uh, that it's not important uh, what you study, and I think this is a great tragedy of, of how uh, the young kids today look at studies, that they go, okay, what job can I get at the end of this? And the, the real answer is probably none. You know, you, if you do a, a, a degree... Uh, that's the high-end degree, you might get a job, but uh, you know, best stuff you can hope for is to be a teacher. <laughs> a marvellous profession, I might add. Um, so when I finished my degree, I was almost immediately headhunted to, uh, to start a new music course at the TAFE. And uh, what was great about that course was that it was a music industry course. It wasn't teaching music was teaching the skills that I already had. Uh, recording, live sound, uh, there were some performance subjects, some songwriting subjects, some copyright law subjects, 
uh, which I'd lived through and signed the worst record of publishing deals in history, so I knew what not to sign now. Um, so that kind of fell into my lap. So I worked there for 18 years in my life, uh, first just casual and then 10 years as a full-time teacher. Over that time, I think every single musician that finished high school came through our doors, you know, so, uh, and that, that was really rewarding. So uh, that was a really good period of my life, even though so I was a little job, but uh, finally my mum and dad were really happy with me. And um, so uh, from that, um, I, I met a lot of great people, uh, great, great educators, great musicians, and I think we had a great program of uh, giving kids the opportunity to do things properly and not just uh, go around and, and try and do it and, and reinvent the wheel over and over and over again. So, um, you know, occasionally I run into um, students, ex-students, working in the industry, and I tell you what, my heart just goes with pride when I see these guys out there doing a good job, you know. And uh, uh, I saw a, a young guy up at the Blue Mountains Folk Festival this year, and uh, I thought, I know that guy. And he said, Tino, how you going? And he sat down and talked to me. He said, you know, he was doing front of house on the, the sound for Kate Miller Heidke. And he said, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if it hadn't been for you. What's his name? What's his name? <laughs> and I finally remembered his name. He said, you, you told me once, you know, you're good enough at this to get out of town and do it professionally somewhere else. And, and I told him to get out of town. And he'd done that. So he's been all over the world working with Kate and uh, a couple of different other acts, that, that independent bands. But, you know, he's got a great career. And, uh, you know, it's kind of really heartwarming to actually be part of that. And... Uh, so I get back to the book. Did I tell you I'd written a book? <laughs> and uh, so what I've, what I've covered in the book is all the parts of my career, um, and some of them are not, not very glamorous, but some of them are, are, are pretty good fun doing countdown. Didn't get paid for it very well, but it's a great great photo to have, you know. And uh, one of remember one of the the gigs we did on countdown, we said to the the director. Do you mind if we let off our explosives during the show? They went, oh, it's not a very good idea. And I said, no, honest, we've done this a million times. Our lighting guy does this every night. We've never had a problem with it. And uh, he went, oh, really? Let's run it through in rehearsal, see what happens. Now, the guy we had was a guy called Wick. Uh, good name for an explosives guy. And his job was to mix flash powder and gunpowder in a particular ratio. In it, he, he panicked and he reversed the ratio. So there's lots of gunpowder in it, not a lot of flash. So at the appropriate moment, you <laughs> And it was a bit like the Who on the, on the Smothers Brothers. Blew the skin out of the front, drum, of, the front of the bass drum. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the bomb went off and there was complete silence. Director walked up and he said, Yeah, I don't think we'll do that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, something I have to uh, point that I have to make with the book is that I thought, How hard can this be? I know all about me. I'll just start writing. It's amazing how much you forget. And uh, 
my uh, memory was that with the heroes, uh, we toured with ACDC when they first came back to Australia uh, with their new singer. And uh, my memory was we did countdown through the day. We, you rehearse through the day. You're there from 9 o'clock to 6. Uh, rehearse the show three times and do it live in front of the kids. And then we were whisked off to the Maya Music Bowl to do our set in front of the Angels and uh, ACBC. I think that's what happened. I'm sure that's what happened. And uh, I started checking the dates and I realised, hang on, that ACDC concert was on a Friday night. So I asked the guys in the band, what did we do that night? And one of the guys, bass players said, oh man, we flew down specially for it. And I talked to our road crew and he said, one of them said, I've still got the backstage pass for that. I'll tell you what date it was. He said, it was definitely the Friday. And I said, did we do Countdown before? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. Impossible, that was, Countdown was on a Sunday. And I'd forgotten in the midst of time, I rang up Herm Kovac from TMG, I said, did we ever record Countdown on Fridays? He went, nearly always. <laughs> So a countdown was recorded on a Friday, it was aired on the Sunday, and then it was repeated the following Saturday. Um, so that all came back, but it took three days of going, what? <laughs> what do, is any of this real? <laughs> I think most of it is. So how are we doing for time? Five to seven. Five to seven. Still got plenty of time. <laughs> so um, from, from uh, Heroes, uh, I went into working in the studio for Peter Anderson, Studio 21 it was called. I got to record uh, a very uh, infant uh, version of Screaming Jets, and those the two guys, Dave and uh, Grant, just knew from the start that they were big pop stars, and uh, you know they had an international career. So um, I started working with them on their songwriting and their playing, and eventually I rang up Alberts, where we recorded the Heroes album, spoke to Vander and Young, and said, I've "Got this fantastic band, you need to see them. Can we bring them down and record them?" And they went, gee, sure, come on down. So we, we started doing that with the Screaming Jets. Out of that recording, uh, they got a lot of interest from other record companies and eventually got a pretty good record deal. And the rest is history, you know, one of the, the biggest rock anthems of, of Australian music with uh, the song Better. Um, so, and during that time, I also started working with a band called Swanee. And so John Swan, the, the head of that, was uh, Jimmy Barnes's brother, uh, elder brother and as good a singer as Jim is, John Swan is, you know, far superior singer. So I got to sing, or play guitar, and sing along with one of the greatest singers in the country uh, for about three years. So during that time, because I was working so much in Sydney, I started to, uh, to, to live in Sydney, and I, was also, I also met a, a keyboard player in Swanee uh, who went on to tour America with Joe Bonamassa, so a very good player. But he bought a recording studio in Sydney. So I started working in his studio and started managing the studio. And I got to meet some of the, the biggest acts in the country and work with them. So again, I was, there was a learning experience for me, but I was the producer and I was the engineer. So those skills that I'd learned um, in the studio with Peter Dawkins and Richard Lush and then Vander and Young, I could start putting that into practice with these bands. So I got to record, see if anybody remembers this, Bobby Lim. Yeah, okay. 
um, Doug Parkinson, yeah. uh, got to work with the Angels and Gang and Chang, and just about every session musician and session vocalist in Sydney would eventually come through the doors, you know, they were always paid to come in and sing, but uh, I got to be friends with, with some of these and still, still good friends to, today with some of the best musicians in the country. And what I was able to do because of that was, in my work from then on, I could utilise the talents of the best people that were available in this country. And I, I just maintain that if you can work with people that are better than you all the time, you will eventually go up to their level. So I'm still working on that. Floundering away there. But uh, it's, it's been a terrific experience. So um, after that, uh, I came back to, uh, to Newcastle. And at that time, once upon a time, you could actually play in one band and just play every night of the week in that one band. But what had happened in Newcastle while I'd been away is everybody started working in multiple uh, ensembles. So um, I started uh, playing with a band called Rating Party. Now what's great about getting to 64 is you can go, know what the guys are doing? Maybe we should do a gig. So in a bit of flagrant self-promotion now, June the 29th, which is a Friday night, the raiding party are doing a reunion gig at Lazotte's. So be there or be square. Hopefully it won't be weathered like we've got there. Um, I started working with the Tex Pistols. I put together a rockabilly band called uh, uh, the Soda Jerks. And I'd pick up uh, sound gigs, uh, live sound gigs, and studio work as well. So <coughs> all the bits of, all the skills that I'd, I'd uh, built up uh, started to weave together so that uh, whenever something was a bit uh, slow, say performance-wise, the studio would support me. If the studio wasn't working, I'd have teaching. So that all of those things <coughs> that I'd learned over those years still keeps me employed today. You know, I, I didn't make a million dollars, I still have to actually earn a, a, a smattering of a living. Um, but the, the, what I, I point out to uh, students or anybody that bothers to ask me is that uh, if you want a career in music, you don't have to be at the very top level. You don't have to be uh, on, on the top of the charts touring the world. You can actually live at home, have a comfortable life, particularly in Newcastle. It's a great, a great music town, great place to make a living as a musician. You can do all of those things, uh, but you, what you need to do is just work on your craft, be good at what you do. And I, I, the point I make to most students is that if you want to make a living, you need to be as good on your instrument uh, as you can be so that you can actually teach other people that instrument. So if you're uh, good enough to teach it, you'll make a good living because most musicians, at least 40 to 50% of their income is from teaching. And with that teaching comes mentorship. And you'll find that if you're pretty good at something and you've got a, a good teacher, that teacher will introduce you to the community of musicians and you'll become part of that community and you'll, you'll be able to do some of the exciting things that I've, I've done through my life. So they completed the sermon, I think. <laughs>